to a bonus episode number 444 of the Cyber Law Podcast. This is an interview with Bruce Schneier about his new book, A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. Bruce doesn't need an introduction to long-term listeners of the podcast because he's been a regular participant at various times. But for more recent listeners, Bruce is a, a well-known security technologist, really a security guru, according to The Economist. And I think that's about right. He's written 14 books. He writes a newsletter. He's got a blog that I regularly go through for stories to use on the podcast. And he's a fellow at the Berkman Center at Harvard, also the Belfer Center at the Kennedy School and a board member at EFF. So he's the zealot of the uh, the modern computer world. Bruce, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, no, it's, it's great to have you. And let's jump right into the book because I read it and it felt like kind of a meditation on what it means to be a hacker. And I want to just start with that. What is a hacker in your view? And what's a hacker's mind? So I like the term meditation. I haven't heard that before. And maybe the book is that. And I saw, I think of a hacker as someone who finds loopholes in the rules, someone who subverts the rules. So as opposed to someone who breaks the rules, someone who finds a place where the rules are inadequate or finds an unintended consequence, follows the rules, but breaks their intent. So the example I always like to use is a tax loophole, right? And the tax code isn't computer code, but it's code, it's algorithms, it's inputs and outputs, and you turn the crank and you get numbers. And the people who write that code, the lawmakers, make mistakes. There are bugs in the code. There are vulnerabilities in the code. We call those vulnerabilities tax loopholes. There are exploits. We call them tax avoidance strategies. And there are black hat hackers. We call them accountants. We call them attorneys. Right? And their job is to find loopholes. Now, loopholes don't break the rules. They're not illegal. They are at best a gray area, but they are often a mistake, an oversight, something that is legal, even though not intended. Right. So you're subverting, not the rules necessarily, but their intent. Yeah, you know, subverting the rules, the intent, it's always hard to, I mean, we can play a lot of semantic games. I really choose not to because I'm not a philosopher. As you're saying, I'm meditating and not philosophizing. So if you break into someone's house, that's not a hack. But if you figure out a way that the door lock will let you in, even though, you know, you don't have authorization, that's more like a hack. Right. And and, and th that's tricky because, in fact, that's probably also illegal. It's just you're, you're using subtlety and getting the, the lock to do what you want, not what presumably the homeowner thought it was going to do. Right. And, and you as a lawyer know this. There are hierarchies of systems. So that's hacking the door lock. But there's an overarching rule saying, I don't care how you did it. If you broke into my house, that's illegal. So you're hacking the lock, but now we put in place a law that basically says any hack is is not allowed. So, and what are some examples of that? You see that in casinos, that there are hacks of various casino games, you know, card counting. And, you know, then there are rules. The rule at a casino is we can throw you out for whatever reason we want. Right. And they, and they do it for people who are doing what is, perfectly within the rules of blackjack but counting counting right. counting the cards is not a, a violation of the rules it's not illegal it's just going to get you thrown out and barred forever for right. life from the casino because in a casino strategy is considered cheating i get it okay so you, you you've gone to what i thought was most interesting about the book 
especially from a, for a podcast called Cyber Law, which is you immediately took a term that we usually associate with people who are dealing with computer code and applied it to what lawyers do to statutory code. And I, I think that's, you spend much of the book talking about the ways in which lawyers are doing something that would be, that could be described as hacking. How well does that analogy work? Yeah, it works mostly. And, and you know, I don't think of hacking as bad necessarily, right. because finding loopholes and rules are how we modernize rules. And that, you know, a gray area in the law is something that you as a lawyer might find. You use it. I disagree with you. We go in front of a judge who either decides, yep, yeah, that was a good idea or that, that was a bad idea. So it's how systems evolve. I have a bunch of examples from rules of sports. It's sports are codified rules. My favorite example is Formula One racing. 1975, some team shows up on the track with a six-wheeled car. And everyone says, you can't have a six-wheeled car. And they pull out the rule book and say, show me. And it turns out the rules are silent on the number of wheels a car can have. Now, the rulemaking body, I forget their name, they're French, has, has rewritten the rules. So a few years later, they updated the rules so a car can have no more or no less than, in case you get any ideas, four wheels. Right? So the rules were, were updated so the hack is no longer legal. And systems of laws are the same way. So you might be Uber and you see some ways to subvert the intent of laws regulating taxis. You're not actually a taxi. You're doing something different. Your attorneys say you, know, you don't have to follow these taxi rules. City says something different. There's a lawsuit, goes in front of a judge who decides. Now, is Uber's hack legal or is it not legal? And, you know, different countries, different jurisdictions have decided different ways in that. But here is a way, you know, a pretty archaic moribund system of municipal taxis is being modernized for the 21st century internet era. And we might not like what Uber is doing, or we might like what Uber is doing, but they're definitely hacking. What's interesting here is that sometimes there's a very clear and pretty responsive decider of what the intent was. You know, if you hack Microsoft code, Microsoft will decide whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, and they will either patch or they won't, and they'll do it pretty promptly. And there's no appeal. You don't even get to make oral argument. They, they just do what they think is right. And very occasionally they will say, we're not going to patch it because it's a feature and the feature can be misused and people need to protect themselves against that, but they're not going to protect it with a patch. Same thing with the, uh, the guys who make the Formula One rules. Whereas it's a lot harder to say what the intent of a law is. Yes, the judge, the judge will say that, but other judges could disagree. And we all feel like we can have our own view about that. There's a, there's a whole set of, of people who say, you, you don't ask what the intent is. You ask what the rules, what the law says, and you follow the law's words, textualism, and don't worry about some evidence, you know, on the floor of Congress about what the intent was. And we, we can call that the blockchain way of viewing yes. law, right? doesn't matter what the intent is. If the code says you get all the money, then you get all the money. Sorry, we just wrote it wrong. But he's now poor and you have all the money. It, it is a lot harder. 
And like when there's a, a singular body, a sports authority, the maker of software, an operating system, they get to decide what the intent is and whether they should patch the, the law. If it's a tax loophole, it's a lot harder. Yeah. You know, so it's not only, I mean, we could even agree it was a mistake, but now there's a lobbying arm wanting to keep it. There's a constituency who likes it. There are now lawmakers who are saying my people are telling me that it should stay. And you're right. There isn't a singular intent. Right. Of, you know, what's the intent of the taxi regulations? I mean, we kind of sort of know to protect people, to stop from overcharging. Right. But, you know, we're we are just making it up and there could be disagreement. And then now there are political disagreements. There's no constituency in Microsoft saying, you know, keep all of the uh, vulnerabilities so the Russians can break into everybody's really, you computer. You could have fooled me. Right? Those <laughs> don't but, but they are on the floors of Congress. Yes. And, you know, this this vulnerability in the tax code, in the financial regulations is something that we like for whatever our political reason is. But yes, that makes it much harder to patch. And you know, it could take years right. to update the tax code, even if you all agree- That it was a mistake. That it was a mistake. And the, the one I, there's an example I use in my book of a, it was a mistake in, in one of those very large Trump tax bills that had handwritten notes. There's a, there's a mistake, everyone agrees that I think charges military families tax on death benefits. It's like super embarrassing. Nobody wants to do it. Everybody agrees it's a mistake. And I don't think it's been patched yet. Yeah. Because it's really hard. It's not like patch Tuesday. You know, you get a hundred patches on your windows machine, second Tuesday every month. And we just don't do law. Well, actually, sometimes way. you do. Sometimes there are corrections bills that pass uh, six weeks after the original bill. They're just meant to clean up all the typos. But those are so easily abused that they've fallen out of favor. And that's sort of, that's our system. And you know, and some of this book is, you know, how do we create a governance system that is as agile as software governance? Because now we're living in a world where things happen so quickly and I want to be able to correct a typo in a law in days, in hours. I mean, I want that system to work better. And the fact that it's not, I think it's hurting us in a lot right. of different but, ways. But then you have to live in a world in which the laws that are that apply to you are made with somebody that who's, has the same power over the laws that Microsoft has over its code. I'm not sure there are a lot of people I which would put is in that right. position. Do we really want that? No, I get it. I'm not saying this yeah. is easy. But, you know, we're living in a, we're just living in a different world than the mid-1700s when they, we, we invented these systems of governance. So here's an argument that is common in law, and I don't see in hacking at all, but maybe you do. Something goes into the code, and it was a mistake, let's say, but people start to build their behavior around it. And now they have made actual investments of time and commitment and money to something that is clear on its face and a mistake. That's an argument against changing it in law. I don't know how that would show up in a computer code hack that where you would, a circumstance where you would recognize that possibility. Yeah, it does. And it is the rare instance where hacks are not patched. So I can think of Microsoft Auto Run. So Auto Run is the feature where when you put a CD-ROM, remember CD-ROMs? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And it just starts playing. It starts playing, which is great if you are non-computer savvy, you bought a disc, you want to install software, you want to play the music, 
You don't want to have to deal with windows and, and, and a bunch of, of prompts. But it's terrible when that's a piece of malware that automatically runs and takes over your system. So order run was, was wildly held by us security people as an enormous vulnerability. And for years, Microsoft said, and you said this in the beginning of the intro, Microsoft said, you know, the good things about this outweigh the bad. User education, not our fault, sorry. So they refused to patch it. Now, that did change. I think it took about a decade. So that did change, and now we have better systems. So you are right that, and, I, and in the book, the phrase I use is normalization. That in, when you think of these hacks against law, you know, and, and tax loopholes are just a good uh, mental example because we're all familiar with them. Someone discovers it, it becomes popular, and you're right, people, you know, build investment strategies around it. And now it is inculcated in society, at least at some level. And it was probably, it might have been litigated in tax court, and the, and the tax court said, you know, this is a hack, but the law says you could do this if you want to fix it. Not my job. It's you, your job, Congress. Right? Your job to change it. But now there is constituency, lobbying, people who say, you know, this might not have been intended, but we like it. Right? The carried interest loophole is a great example of a, of, a, of a hack, probably 25 years old, that has such a strong constituency around it that every single attempt to patch it has been defeated in Congress. Now, we might disagree on whether you should or you shouldn't, and that's kind of irrelevant, but it, it hasn't been possible. Those who want to close that loophole have been unable to because those that want to keep it open have been able to leverage their power to keep it open. So now it has, has updated itself. One of the things, the frustrations I had reading the book is there are a lot of analogies, law and, and computer hacking, but it's very hard to, to take that analogy and turn it into new insights about law. I did find one, which is you said red teaming for vulnerabilities is standard practice for people who are writing code. And maybe we should do more of that for legislation in the idea of having a red team that says, okay, we're going to look for unintended consequences in this bill in the 24 hours between the introduction or the final taking it to the floor and sending it to a vote. And that happens, but it only happens when there is a clear party that doesn't want things that are not intended to, to get passed. So the IRS ought to be red teaming legislation that goes, the tax legislation, and they do, right? And lobbyists, you know, the, the, the telecom lobby and the Silicon Valley lobby often will red team each other's proposals because they suspect that they're getting screwed. And the same with, with big copyright. But if you find yourself in a situation where there isn't some big institution that is opposed or where the big institutions all of a sudden agree, you're not going to get any red teaming at all. And the time to do it, of course, is before the law is passed, before there is a constituency that's using it. And maybe you can fix it. Now, some of these loopholes are put in on purpose. So it does, if you find one, it doesn't mean it's going out. It was a mistake that nobody noticed it. Right. You know, yeah, but so the, uh, what I think of a lot is that double Dutch Irish sandwich tax loophole that Google and Apple and others have used to avoid U.S. taxes for many years. This is a, a loophole that is a combination of U.S. tax law, Dutch tax law, Irish tax law, and the tax law of an offshore 
Caribbean tax haven. So four different jurisdictions came together accidentally to produce this right. loophole. They all said, well, we don't, we don't tax that and managed not to ever tax it. And none of them taxed some of the, I think they were probably mostly royalty payments. It was, but there was a way to, it was a trick to make more things royalty by, by moving jurisdictions around. So I'm, we're probably going to talk about AI later, but I mean, AI can help here, right? Humans probably can't look for all the loopholes in 24 hours, but we should be able, if not now, but soon to train a computer to do yeah, it. Yeah. So you talk a little bit about Catala, which is this effort to take existing legislative language and regulatory language and turn it into code to graph it out so you can see the if, then, and and. That makes a lot of sense because so many times with a complicated law, you have to think through all those consequences and make them very clear grammatically yeah. and in the structure of the law. And so people do think about this, but they don't consistently think about it. And Catalog, if I understand it, is an effort to say, let's actually force the discipline of saying, you've got to graph everything out on uh, legislation. And it's interesting, right? Is it good or bad to make laws algorithmically tractable? I mean, as an attorney, is that going to help you or make your life worse? And I don't know. But right, there is this move to take laws and make them somehow canonical so systems can understand them. We see that in financial rules because a lot of financial systems are computerized. So the financial rules tend to be tractable. But, you know, the traffic rules aren't because it's only humans that have to follow traffic rules. So they're vague, they're ambiguous, and we're okay with that because we are vague, ambiguous human beings, and that's fine. Yeah, and pretty, pretty much all tort law is going to be, you know, what was reasonable. Well, you know, you're not going to you're not going to be able to put that into an algorithm. Yeah, ha 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 ha! You 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 laugh. We're going to come back in a year and talk about the the Chat GPT tort reasonableness <laughs> system, which will be producing judicial decisions at the rate of you know twenty million a second and putting all the judges out of work. You've heard it here first. I think that's pretty unlikely since the, the, the least chat GPT seems to allow you to say, no, that's wrong. Do it a different way. And it says, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, we would pull that out because judges never, I mean, my father was a judge and you could never yeah, say that. That's true. <laughs> so yeah, if you took Catalog and apply, there certainly are places where you can apply it. You could apply it to probably to immigration law, which is an area I will say where there is no red team on the, maybe we shouldn't let as many people inside of that debate. There's nobody who lobbies that. There should the be. There's a lot of politics behind that position. You'd think someone right. was paying attention. They, 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 there are people who feel that way, but none of them have the money or the clout to actually do some red teaming. So I, I have said in the other context that it, it's like, it reads like the tax code would read if no one cared how much money we raised. And, and it's just constant set of surprising exceptions. But you can, nonetheless, you, they, they, it's complicated enough that you could put it together. And then the idea of then running it through AI, which can very quickly tell you, you've got a whole bunch of query cases where you haven't resolved 16 questions about who falls into which of these categories and basically just bat it back to the drafter and say, what's your answer to these questions? Right. There are loopholes. Now, I don't think that AI exists yet. I mean, it's possible. 
So a little, little bit of background. There are AIs right now that are finding vulnerabilities in computer code, like finding like traditional hacks that, that I started with. They're still not very good at it. I mean, they're getting better, but they're not very good at it. My guess, we're still a couple of years away from, we're going to feed all of our code into this AI. It'll find all the vulnerabilities. And now software will be vulnerability free. It's... It's coming. It would be great. It would be great. Now, the transition period is dangerous. The old code, the attackers are doing that with. The new code is pretty perfect. So there's a risky period in the middle. And I think it's a little bit further doing that with other closed systems of rules. Yeah. Like the tax code or immigration law or housing law or, I don't know, financial regulations. But it does seem like not stupid science fiction. We already are in a world, DARPA sponsored one of these. I don't know why they haven't sponsored more. You talk about this, where you had AI protecting itself from hackers and trying to hack others, which is the world we live in, at least at the international relations level. And obviously you could have a legislative hacking team that is designed to tilt the playing field in every possible way, while another team is trying to patch all the, the obvious benefits for a particular subgroup. Don't you think as soon as you come up with a, a, a machine language system that is designed to cure or at least identify holes in legislation, isn't somebody going to try to write an AI that will look for them and either patch them differently or just dummy up about them? So this is important, right? And, and this is true for AI systems today, that they are owned and built by and for the benefit of large corporations. Right? So it's Google, it's Microsoft, it's big companies. This tax loophole finding AI is much more likely to be run by Goldman Sachs than it is to be run by, I don't know, the New York Times or Citizens for Tax Fairness. So yes, right? who owns these models, who owns these systems determines whether the hacks will be used, I don't want to say for good or bad, for offense or defense. And so, yes, that matters a lot here. And you talked about uh, the the computer, the, the uh, capture the flag contest at DEF CON. And U.S. DARPA has not done another one, but China does it every year. Of course year. they do, and they, as they should. But why do we not do it? hacking run by the military, and every year there is this contest where AIs compete against each other in a simulated network, hacking each other, defending themselves. And they've gotten much better at it because they're still doing it. And now I don't know why the U.S. doesn't do it anymore. We so, should. You know, my, my understanding of how DARPA works is there was somebody there for probably at least three years, borrowed from academia, who had a whole bunch of ideas that he wanted to pursue. And one of them was this. And this was a successful, or at least he successfully got it funded and then presumably moved on. But you could figure out who it was and why it didn't get picked up again, because it, it, it sounds like a great idea. And now that we've seen what ChatGPT can do, we should be eager to have it happen on a regular basis. I, I think so, too. I think, we, I think we learn a lot by these sorts of contests because I mean, these are inherent adversarial systems. So having them compete like works better in computer security that doesn't like paleontology, which is not inherently adversarial. Yes. I, that was the adversarial nature of this is another thing that's a little frustrating in the book 
and, and I think probably frustrating to you too. At various times, hackers show up as romantic, clever, subversive, standing up for the people and fighting the power. And then at various times you recognize, well, actually at the end of the day, most of the people who are doing this are going to get hired by somebody and they're going to do the will of whoever has the money. And you never quite resolve where you come out on that. At the end of the day, is hacking likely to be just a way of cementing power or is it ultimately going to produce more leeway for ordinary people to live their lives the way they want to? So I think if hacking is a skill, kind of like plumbing, and you can be a good plumber and an evil plumber, you mean, but plumbing is a skill, but hacking is a way of finding loopholes and systems and that could be harnessed for good or for bad. It's harnessed for the interests of whoever is doing it. I think in general, in our society, it, it's the rich and powerful that are better able to hack. Not because they're smarter, but they can hire the expertise and they're more likely to get their hacks normalized. So there is a, if there's a hack I discover that I can save a couple hundred dollars on my taxes by doing this trick, you know, I'm only, I'm not saving a lot of money. It's, it's small. You know, it's probably going to be declared illegal by the tax court. I don't have the lobbying to tell Congress to make it normal. But if the, you know, if Peter Thiel figures out a tax loophole in Roth IRAs to shield like a billion dollars from tax, he's A, making a lot more money and he's got a lot more power to defend to, it, to get, to defend himself. So in general, hacking, like everything else, I think cements existing power structures. It is sometimes used to subvert power structures. I mean, there, there are hackers and I, and I, I talk about and in a couple of chapters about hacks coming out of the third world, sort of ways to get around regulations and right? ways to just get, avoid this horrible bureaucracy that is just stifling everything. And then, then there are there are there are hacks. And this, so there there are counterexamples. But in general, I think hacking reinforces power structures rather than support. And look, it, it, that is the story of the World Wide Web which started out as this wonderful decentralizing, empowering of everybody to do all kinds of things, to find each other, to organize. And then gradually, as that inconvenienced a lot of very powerful people, you had centralization and then people who had control of the centralized, uh, say, social media, were leaned on by other powerful people to do their bidding. And we're living in a world where we kind of have to recognize that uh, computerization has turned out to be better for the powers that be than for the rest of us. Right. And some of it's old powers like governments and some of it's new powers like Facebook. But yes, centralization, power, and a lot of it reinforces. Yep. You know, the hacks that Uber has found has made Uber a very, very big, powerful company, not profitable. <laughs> that would be that would be too weird. <laughs> but but powerful. And they are, you know, changing taxi laws. And and, you know, we might or might not agree on what they're doing is good. It's a very separate conversation. Right. Well, now, now, now that they charge as much as the taxis do, I, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to be enthusiastic about yeah, it. It depends but... where you are. You go to New York now and Ubers are more expensive than taxis. Okay. So last topic I wanted to cover, because I thought this was and toward the end of your book, is you talk about cognitive hacking in which, again, people with the power, people who know how to manipulate our cognitive systems are able to hack people. And you're a little unclear about exactly how that's hacking. It's, it's I'm stretching by analogy. Yeah, exactly. Here. I can tell I, you. I, you're right. It's manipulating people and, and probably in the best 
the closest example is you're getting people to do things that they don't even recognize you're getting them to do. They, they don't even see that they're being manipulated. The worst catchphrase introduced in the 21st century was dark patterns, which means absolutely nothing. But that's what they're talking about. I know. About. It's, a bad, it, it's a term we use, but it is not a great term. I agree with you. But it's, it's, it's the thing that gets you to click the wrong box when you're moving fast to move to a second. But I mean this more generally. I mean, and this is this is a stretch because like, what's the intent of different cognitive functions? I don't, I'm not assuming a designer, all these systems evolve, but you know, our brains do certain things. So these are just ways to get us. So, I mean, social media hacking our attention or fear, which I think is hacked by terrorism. Uh-huh. For a bunch of reasons, hacking our our systems of trust. You can even argue that junk food hacks our systems of desirability, right? Because it it triggers certain things that when we were you know living at the edge of starvation in small family groups, carbohydrates, sugars, we just went for that, right. and now we're living in an abundance system. So you know, extra sweet means you eat too much. That these are all ways that are that these that our brain systems are being hijacked by people, by organizations to get us to do things we might not do otherwise. Right. And there's a dark future there where AI learns what what triggers us, each individual, and it sends little robots into our life that we learn to love because they're cute and they push all our buttons and they start asking us to buy them presents. Uh, <laughs> and that would be okay if we own the robots. But if the robot is Alexa, owned by Amazon, then, you know, to whose benefit are these hacks going to be? You know, I mean, a robot that comes into my life and convinces me to eat eat healthier and exercise and, right? I mean, I might like that. But a robot that comes into my life and convinces me to buy more cheap stuff on Amazon, I'm not going to like as much. So really the question is, who is directing this? Who's benefiting? Who's it hacking for? You know, so there's something, you know, hacks are overused. They're called life hacks, which are tricks we play on ourselves to live better lives. Yeah, they're, they're fair enough. We can, we, we can hack ourselves and, we, and, and make ourselves better people. Right. Because, you know, we all think we should eat better, but when we sit down at the menu, the hamburger and fries is what we order. But if, but if we ordered a day in advance, we're more likely to pick healthy things. This happens to be true, right? So a hack might be, that I'm going to always order my food the day before for, I don't know, for delivery. I'm just making this up, right? And, and I'm okay with that because I'm doing it to myself willingly and consciously because I know my brain at the moment of hunger can be easily hacked by menu design designed to get me to eat unhealthy. All right. Well, as as always, you're, you're a fount of challenging and fun, uh, mind-stretching ideas. And I agree with you on this. We're going to see a lot of this. We're going to have to think about it. Thinking about it as hacking is one way to to get yourself into the the area. And it was a fun book. It's called A Hacker's Mind, which I assume is your mind. How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. I think it delivers on how the powerful bend society's rules. It's a little unclear about how we're going to bend them all back, but it's a fun read. Bruce, thanks so much for coming on. This is terrific. Any last thoughts you want to add? This is great. I I love the examples. Hacking of religious laws, hacking of sports and games and frequent flyer plans. The most fun was coming up with all the examples from so many parts of society. 
Thanks again for coming on. For our listeners, if you've got questions or comments, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave a review and I'll read it on the, uh, in the air. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 444, a bonus episode of the Cyber Law Podcast. Mm-hmm.